This is tape number two of an eight-tape series called Journey to Recovery with Joe and Charlie, recorded in Lawson, Nevada, August 1998. For additional copies of the series or a catalog of all our 12-step tapes, call Encore at 1-800-878-1308 or visit our website at www.12steptapes.com. Can only feel it. And only alcoholics feel it. You see, I kept looking for the rash. I kept looking for the dysentery. No, you don't see our allergy. You feel it. And only we alcoholics feel it. Joe? So I said you'd get in trouble going to town. You know, that's the trouble with trouble. It always starts off with fun, isn't it? How many of you ever went out to get drunk and, and, and to get into trouble? Now we go out and, you know, get drunk and have a little fun. And that's the trouble with trouble. It always starts out as fun. And at least that's the way it did with me. So you know, go ahead. You know, I just love to watch normal, social, temperate, moderate drinkers. Fascinating to watch them. <laughs> Saw one on the airplane yesterday. Yeah, yeah, he ordered a drink, got him a mixer with it, and he put his mixer in this glass with ice in it, poured his little bottle in there, and they buy a little bitty bottle on airplanes. <laughs> I think it cost them $4 today, and hell, there's not a drink in that bottle, period. But anyhow, that's what they ate. And he poured it in there, and then he took a little stick. And he went through a stirring ceremony. <laughs> I don't know much about stirring when it comes to drinking, but he stirred, and he stirred, and he stirred. And after a while, he laid his little stick down. And you know what he did then? He picked up his magazine and started reading his damn magazine. I'm sitting there watching him saying, drink the damn stuff. What the hell did you get it for? That's what we call alcohol abuse. <laughs> now, that may be normal, but I call that sick to drink like that. So, so I think I'll read this again. <laughs> said, the doctor's theory they have an allergy to alcohol interest us. As lame in our opinions to it sound, this may, of course, mean little. But as ex-problem drinkers, we can say that the explanation makes good sense. It explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account. And the explanation of this explains many things which I couldn't otherwise account. It explained to me why I would go down by the bar with every intention of having two. The next thing I know, it's midnight or one or two or three o'clock in the morning or the next day or the next week. And I wonder, well, what in the hell happened? I just went down there to drink too. Well, this idea about this allergy to alcohol interested me. Explained many things which I couldn't otherwise account. Now let's go to Roman numeral page uh, 26. A good textbook will never tell you anything to what it doesn't give you more information to back it up. He's talked here about the allergy. Now let's go over to Roman numeral 6, first paragraph. Let's expand on that just a little bit. I said, we believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the acts of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. I used to hate that word. They called me chronic alcoholic. I hated it. don't particularly like it today. But I found out, too, that chronic just means something that you do over and over and over. So, therefore, I was a chronic drinker or a chronic alcoholic. And it's a manifestation of an allergy. And that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence to reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. You know, this manifestation analogy that, talks, that Charlie talked about, the phenomenon of craving, 
after we take a few drinks. And we don't have the craving before we take a few drinks. It's only after we take a few drinks that the phenomenon of craving develops. And then we have to have more and more and more. And only alcoholics have that. Non-alcoholics do not crave alcohol after they take a drink. They just don't. They get all they want to drink every time they drink, which is two or three maybe. And that's all they want because they don't have this phenomenon of craving that alcoholics have. The action of strawberries on one who's allergic to strawberries is manifested by a rash. The action of milk on one who's allergic to milk is manifested by dysentery. The action of ragweeds on one who is allergic to ragweeds is manifested by itchy, watery eyes, sneezing, and etc. The action of alcohol on one who's allergic to alcohol is manifested by, and he refers to it as the phenomenon of craving. He uses the word phenomenon because he didn't understand it. So what it is, it's manifested by an actual physical craving in the body that demands more of the same after we once started. And the word craving is very, very important. You know, I hear people today say, well, I came to AA and I craved a drink for four years. No, in the context of the big book, that's the wrong use of the word craving. They might have needed a drink, wanted a drink, desired a drink. The only way an alcoholic can crave alcohol is to first put it in the body. Then the physical craving develops, and then we can't stop and we end up drunk. So in the recovery section of the book, when you see the word craving, it's always referring to the body, never to the mind. We'll use the word obsession for the mind. The word craving is for the body. Now, he goes on a little further over on Roman numeral 28. And he talks about five different kinds of drinkers. Then he drives this idea of the phenomenon of craving home being an allergy one more time. Let's look at these five drinkers. He said the classification of alcoholics, this on Roman numeral page 28, the classification of alcoholics seems most difficult, and the much detail is outside the scope of this book. He said there are, of course, the psychopaths who are emotionally unstable. We're all familiar with this type. They're always going on the wagon for keeps, and they're over-remorseful and make many resolutions, but never a decision. So we call that type one. There is the type of man who is unwilling to admit that he cannot take a drink. He plans various ways of drinking. He changes his brand or his environment. That's type two. There is a type who always believes that after being entirely free from alcohol for a period of time, he can take a drink without danger. Type three. There is a manic depressive type who is perhaps the least understood by his friends and by whom a whole chapter could be written. Now that's type four. I always thought I was the next one, type five. To then there are types entirely normal in every respect. Except in the effect alcohol has upon them, they are often able, intelligent, friendly people. God, I like that. Wasn't that good? <laughs> Any more type fives in the room tonight? Yeah, a whole bunch of them. Now he makes his point one more time. All these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. This phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been, by any treatment which we are familiar, permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. Now, I think what he said is this. 
that if all we alcoholics in this room tonight should take a drink, God forbid that happen. But if we did, we would not all react just exactly the same. In just a little bit, one of us would be crying in our beer, oh, boo-hoo-hoo-hoo, the world's not treating me right. In just a little bit, one of them will be up here on this stage hooping and hollering and dancing and cutting up and having a hell of a good time. In just a little bit, there'll be two over in that corner getting in a fight, just sure as anything. Look over here, there'll be a couple, one putting the make on the other. We tend to do that too when we drink. We would do many different things, but if we're a real alcoholic, there's one thing that every one of us would do. We would start looking for a second drink. The phenomenon of craving has taken over now. The allergy has manifested itself, and now when we can't stop, we've got to have a third drink. And the fourth and the fifth and the sixth and the eighth and the tenth and on and on till we're drunk, sick, and in all kinds of trouble. Now, it really doesn't make any difference whether we're born with it or whether we drink ourselves into it. I was born with it, I'm sure. First drink I took at age 14, the allergy presented itself that night, and I got drunk. Every time I drank, I got drunk. I drank 26 years. I don't ever remember taking one drink of anything that had alcohol in it. It always led to two to three to six to eight to ten and etc. Some of you, I'm sure, drank with safety for several years, but somewhere you crossed the line. And the same thing began to happen to you after several years of drinking that happened to me from the very beginning. But what difference does it make? The fact is that's the way we are tonight. I know that's the way we are tonight, too. Because if we were not that way tonight, we wouldn't be in this room tonight. If you and I could drink without getting drunk, where would we be? Well, we'd be out there drinking without getting drunk. But you see, we can't do that. That's what we've got in common in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, is we can't drink without getting drunk. Now, back in the 1930s, this was the doctor's opinion. In the 1930s, they knew very little about metabolism. Today, they know lots about metabolism. Today, they know that if you put anything in your system, such as a piece of bread or a piece of beefsteak, that the mind and body recognizes what that is. Certain organs of the body begin to produce some things called enzymes. They attack that food and begin to break it down and separate it into usable and non-usable items. What the body can use, such as the proteins, the amino acids, the vitamins, the body will retain. What it can't use, it will dissipate through the urinary and intestinal tract. They call that metabolism. Today, they have proven that the doctor's opinion is no longer just an opinion. It's actual truth. Now, we're going to look at a little picture here for just a minute. And I want to stress that this is not AA information. AA won't get involved into why we're allergic because that might bring controversy. But this information presented to us a few years ago by members of the medical profession is so interesting and has such depth and meaning for people like us, I think we would be remiss if we didn't look at it. So let's look at it for just a moment. In the center of that picture, there's nine people there that drink safely. They are at ease with alcohol. They take a drink or two, the mind and body senses it, the enzyme production starts, and the enzyme attacks the alcohol, breaks it down into acid aldehyde, then to diacetic acid, then to acetone. In the final stages, it becomes a simple carbohydrate made up of water, sugar, and carbon dioxide. 
The water will be dissipated through the urinary intestinal tract. The sugar is calories, energy, empty calories. None of the amino acids, none of the vitamins, but a form of energy. The body will burn them, store the excess to be as fat to be used at a later date. The carbon dioxide will be dissipated through the lungs. In the normal social drinker, this takes place at the rate of approximately one ounce per hour. Now, I know it'll vary with different people, but the average is one ounce per hour. And if they don't drink more than an ounce per hour, they can't get drunk. Their body metabolizes it and burns it up and gets rid of it at that rate. Very seldom do you see a social drinker drinking more than an ounce per hour. If you're with one of them and they're drinking more than an ounce per hour, you better get out of the way, because they're going to puke on you after a while. They'll either go to sleep or they'll puke on you, one of the two, every time. The left-hand side is the one who does not drink safely, or is at disease with alcohol. And if you want to use the word disease, that's all it means, something that separates you from the norm. We alcoholics put it in our body, the same thing happens. The enzymes attack the alcohol, break it down to acetaldehyde, then to diacetic acid, then to acetone. It seems as though in our bodies, the enzymes necessary to complete the metabolism, breaking it, breaking it down from acetone to the simple carbohydrate, are not there in the same qualities and or quantities as they are in the body of the non-alcoholic. Therefore, it stays in our body for a longer period of time as acetone. It is proven today that acetone ingested into the human system that remains there for an appreciable period of time will produce an actual physical craving for more of the same. The non-alcoholic's body, it goes through that stage so rapidly the craving never occurs. In our body, it stays there long enough, the craving develops, and that demands a second drink. Now just think, you got most of the acetone from the first, now you put that in from the second. The acetone level goes up. And if the acetone is what causes the craving, then the craving becomes harder with the second drink. Now you put in the third. You got most of the first, nearly all the second, now you put in the acetone from the third, and the craving goes up. And that demands a fourth. You got most of the first, nearly all the second, that from the third, now you put in the acetone from the fourth, and as the acetone level increases, the craving becomes harder. At midnight, we're laying out in the parking lot. <laughs> They've run over us and broken our leg. And they come running up to us and say, can we help you? And we say, my God, yes, give me another drink. <laughs> you see, we're craving it harder at midnight after 30 drinks than we were at 6 in the evening after 2 drinks. That explains to me why I never got enough. Hell, I drank 26 years. I never did get all the alcohol I wanted. I got a hell of a lot more than I needed, more than I could stand, but I never got all I wanted. Because the more you drink, the higher the craving, the higher the craving, the more you want, the more you want, and you just, it's just endless. Now, if this never got any worse, we could probably learn to live with this situation. But we know not only do we have an illness, we have a progressive illness that always gets worse and never better. Today we know that as we drink, the more we drink, the longer we drink, the more tissue we destroy. Alcohol is a destroyer of human tissue. And the more tissue we destroy, it seems as though 
that it acts upon two organs of the body first, which are the liver and the pancreas. Now today we know that the organs of the body that produce the enzymes necessary to metabolize alcohol are the liver and the pancreas. And as we drink and as we damage them, the enzyme production becomes less and less. The craving becomes harder and harder, with the resultant drinking becoming worse and worse. We know also that the body begins to shut down on the production of everything as we get older. Now, I wish that were not true, but believe me, it is. I'm experiencing lots of that. If I should take a drink today after 20-some-odd years of sobriety, I wouldn't start where I left off 20-some-odd years ago. The craving would be harder, the drinking would be harder, and the resultant trouble would be harder due to the aging factor. So not only do we have a physical illness, we have a progressive physical illness due to two factors, damage to the body and also due to the aging factor. Now that I see that, I can accept the fact that I can no longer successfully drink alcohol. Until I could see this, I knew there had to be a way I could drink without getting drunk. And I damn near killed me trying to find it. But now that I can see this, I can accept the fact that I can no longer safely drink alcohol. Now, if that's all that was wrong with me, and if that's all that was wrong with you, we would pass the hat, get up and go home, and never have to go to another AA meeting. But you see, that's just half of my problem. The other half is right up here in my head. If I never took the first drink, this allergy couldn't hurt me. I have a friend who is allergic to all things fish. Every time he eats fish, his throat swells up. He almost chokes to death. But that's not his problem. The fact that he's allergic to fish is beside the point, because if he don't eat fish, that can't happen to him. But he got something up here in his head that isn't right when it comes to fish. The switch doesn't close, or a light bulb doesn't come on, or something. He's three French fries short of a Happy Meal. Yeah. From time to time, his mind tells him that it's okay to eat fish. And he'll eat the fish. His throat swells up. He ends up in the hospital every time. And I bet it always starts like this. Well, I haven't had any fish in 90 days. Surely I could have one piece of fish. Well, it says it's that, orange, it's that orange roughy I've been eating. If I'd eat nothing but halibut, it'd be okay. Well, it might even say it's them damn people I've been eating fish with. If I just changed my crowd, whatever the reason, his mind gives him permission to do so. Now, I'm the same way when it comes to alcohol. Left on my own resources, from time to time, my mind tells me it's okay to drink alcohol. Then I take the drink and then the allergy takes over. So the real problem centers in my mind rather than my body. Let's look at the mind for just a few minutes and then we'll be through for the night. Charlie said the doctor said he has never been any treatment which we are familiar permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is the entire abstinence. In other words, if we have an allergy to alcohol and we crave more when we drink, he suggests we don't drink. And that's the end of that. So now we're going to talk about the most dangerous part of the illness. And the most dangerous part of the illness of alcoholism is when we're not drinking. You know why it's the most dangerous part of the illness? Because we're thinking about drinking. So let's move back now to the Roman numeral page 26, and we're going to start talking about the mind. Twofold illness. 
We talked about the physical allergy in great detail. Now we're going to talk about the obsession of the mind. It's in the bottom page, uh, Roman numeral page 26. It says, men and women drink essentially because they lack the effect produced by alcohol. Now, many alcoholics are highly offended when you say that. They say, no, that's not the reason I drink. They say the reason I drink is because I love the taste of alcohol. I wouldn't argue with them whether they do or not. I love the taste of cold beer. I always have, all my life, as far back as I can remember. I also love the taste of cold mountain spring water. I never did sit down and drink a case of cold mountain spring water. You see, that beer did something for me that that spring water didn't do. All my life as a kid growing up, I was on the outside of the crowd looking in. Always wanted to be a part of and knew I could not be. Always knew that whatever I said, whatever I did, it would be the wrong thing. People would laugh and I would be embarrassed. You ladies, I couldn't even get around you. If I got around you, I would just absolutely, completely tongue-tied you. Scared me to death. One night somebody gave me a drink of moonshine whiskey, and all those fears disappeared. And I was allowed to ask a girl to dance with me for the first time in my life. I was allowed to take her home from the dance for the first time in my life. We got in the back seat of a 36 Chevrolet, and I was allowed to do some things I didn't want to do for a long, long time. I loved what alcohol did to me, for me, not to me, but for me. Now, if it gave me a slightly tipsy, out-of-control, beginnings of a nauseous feeling, I wouldn't love that. But you see, it gives me that great, exciting, in-control feeling and allows me to function in a manner I've never been able to function before. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. I think we can all pretty well identify with that effect in the beginning. I certainly had that same effect and drank it for the same reasons. But we know that alcoholism is a progressive illness, too. It gets worse over time. And after a while, I began to do some of those things that Charlie talked about. And I began to drink more and more and more. And I began to wake up some mornings with a little guilt, shame, and remorse as a result of things that I was doing while drinking. And that brought on more drinking. And I had to drink to get rid of those feelings, so another effect by which I drank. And as the years and time went by and the trouble that I had in my life went by, in the end, I drank for the sickest effect of all which is total oblivion. And there's only one thing wrong with oblivion, though, isn't there? You wake up. <laughs> then you've got to start doing it again. So there are many, many effects by which we drink, and it progressively gets worse. He said the sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they can, after time, differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one, and I couldn't recognize the truth from the false because my alcoholic life had become normal to me. Everywhere I went, alcohol was involved. Every bar that I went to, they drank like that the way I did in that bar. I didn't go to those bars. That's what I was doing down there at the Zebra Lounge. You know? You know, and one time, I remember I woke up one morning and had a, a clear thought. And I looked over at my wife, Phyllis, and I said, Phyllis, do you realize that most people don't drink like we do? And you know what she said? I don't talk this way. This is what she said. She said bullshit. That's just what she said. Everybody we know drinks just like we do. You know, I thought, oh, that's true. So my alcoholic life had become normal. The abnormal had become normal, and I couldn't hardly tell the truth from the false in that light.
Now he begins to describe how people like us feel whenever we're sober, in forced periods of sobriety. He said, to them, they're alcoholic, oh, excuse me, they are restless, irritable, and discontented. Put a few little words in there, too. It says, we're full of guilt, shame, and remorse. And remember, you know, when we first got sober, we were new. They said if we didn't drink, we were going to feel better. Well, you're going to feel better, all right. You're going to feel resentment better. You're going to feel anger better. You're going to feel a lot of things better. Running around, feeling lousy as hell, wanting to feel better, knowing only one way to feel better. We begin to think about what one or two drinks will do for us. We don't think about what 20 drinks will do, or 30. We think about what one or two will do for us. So unless they can again experience a sense of ease of comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity, and impunity simply means that those people are drinking and seemingly they don't have any problems. And after they have succumbed to desire again, as so many do, after we finally give it in and taken a couple of drinks, and then the phenomenal craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. And how many times have I done that? How many times have you done that? Come off of one of those big drunks and long extended period drunks and promise them and yourself and anybody that will listen, I'll never do it again. I'm through. I promise you, I'm through. Mm -hmm. And those of you who've made those promises, you know that we were sincere and we meant that. He said this is repeated over and over and over and over. And unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there's very little hope for his recovery. So he quit talking about the body now. He's talking about the psychic change, the mind. Later on in our book, the, the, the psychic change is going to be described as a spiritual experience, a spiritual awakening, a personality change. All four words meaning the same thing. A psychic change. There's very little hope for his recovery. So the change is going to have to become here in the mind. Let's look at this picture up here again for just a moment. Over here on this side, we could see that because of the allergy, we can no longer safely drink alcohol. But as we said before, that's not going to bother us if we don't take the first drink. So apparently the problem is going to be over on this side. The real problem centers in the mind telling us we can drink rather than in the body that ensures that we can't drink. Well, the doctor told us then, and they tell us today, there's nothing that can be done for that. So the only possible means of recovery would be to find a way to live where our mind don't tell us it's okay to drink. And we're dealing here with our emotions. We're dealing here with the way we think. We're dealing here with the way that we feel whenever we're sober. We are very, very complex human beings. Not only are we complex physically, but we also are complex mentally too. And all people experience emotions. All people experience from time to time anger, resentment, fear, worry, depression, excitement, elation, guilt, remorse. These are all emotions that all human beings have. Now, somewhere back in our lifetime, as we begin to experience those emotions as we grow up, we start seeking a solution to them. 
And like me, when I was that kid growing up, I was just an emotional basket case. Couldn't hardly function in normal society. Always scared to death, always worried, always angry, always doing things that I shouldn't do and feeling the guilt and the remorse associated with that. Now, I used to think only that we only, only we alcoholics did that. But I found out today that that's normal as kids grow up. Everybody experiences these kind of feelings. And they start looking for an answer, and, and many people find it in many different ways. Some people find that when they don't feel good emotionally, that they can go out here and start working. And the excess work seems to make them feel better. Some people find that when they're emotionally fouled up, they can eat certain foods, and that seems to make them feel better. Some people keep her into sexuality. That makes them feel better. And some people find that there's establishments like this building <laughs> that if you're emotionally disturbed, you can do a little gambling, and that makes you feel better. Now, it doesn't make any difference what you find that makes you feel better. When you find a solution to that emotional problem, your mind has a memory bank. It immediately records the solution. And the reason it does that is the next time you have that emotional problem, you don't have to go looking for a solution. Your mind feeds it back to you. Well, a little gambling made me feel better. Or that food made me feel better. Or that work made me feel better. Whatever. And that's called mental addiction. And everybody has that. You know, we become mentally addicted to certain types of automobiles. We become mentally addicted to our hairdressers. We become mentally addicted to certain dishwater products that we use. This, so, you know, we've got a problem, we find the answer, the mind records it, feeds it back to us the next time we have the problem. As a kid growing up, I had that emotional problem. And one night somebody gave me that drink of moonshine whiskey. And immediately those problems disappeared. And that great, exciting, in-control feeling came over me. And I was allowed to ask that girl to dance, take her home and get in the back seat of that 36 Chevrolet. It answered my problem that night. My mind immediately recorded what it did for me. The next time I got into a solution where I didn't feel right, things were not right, my mind said, if you could find a drink, you'd feel better. And I found a drink of whiskey, and the, God, the magic happened the second time. In other words, alcohol became the solution to my emotional problems. Now, if I had been non-alcoholic, and that worked for me, that would have been great. But I also had that physical allergy over there on that side. And when I had the problem and I used the solution, it, <coughs> it sure enough made me feel better, but also it triggered the allergy, and I would drink more than I intended to drink, and I would end up drunk. And I would repeat that cycle over and over and over and over and over again. The mind causing me to drink the allergy causing me to get drunk. The emotions after coming off the drunk to feed the mind caused me to drink. And the drink then would trigger the allergy. And as time went by, it got worse and worse and worse.
because this is a progressive illness. The drinking would become harder and harder. The trouble would become more and more. The restlessness, irritability, guilt, remorse became more and more. The emotions became worse and worse to trigger the idea of taking the first drink. The mind destroying the body and the body destroying the mind. Now somewhere down the line I said to myself one day, Charlie, you're going to have to do something about your drinking. Now I didn't say you're going to quit drinking. I said you're going to have to do something about your drinking. So the first thing we alcoholics do to do something about our drinking is we decide we're going to control our drinking while drinking. <laughs> Tonight we're just going to have two beers. We're just going to have two drinks. Go to the liquor store and buy a half a pint because nobody can get drunk on a half a pint. And I spent three or four or five, six years trying to control my drinking while drinking. Anybody in here ever try to control your drinking while drinking? Well, now I can see why that would not work because of the allergy. Now, after four, five, six years of trying to control my drinking while drinking, I said to myself one day, Charlie, I don't believe you can drink anymore. It took me a long time to realize it. And I said, I don't believe you can drink anymore. So what do we alcoholics do when we finally decide we can't drink anymore? We trot out the most useful tool we have. We put it right there, and it's called willpower. And we say, sick them, Will. We're through with that drink, and we'll never take another drink as long as we live. <clears throat> now, believe me, you people that are, non, that are non-alcoholic, when we say we're going to quit drinking, that is exactly what we intend to do. You see, we are strong will people. We can use our willpower to handle all other problems, and we assume that we can use willpower here, and we really intend to quit drinking. Now, as the days went by, I haven't done anything about my emotions, by the way. I'll just quit drinking. And as the days go by, these emotions begin to build up. The fear, the guilt, the remorse, the shame, the worry, the depression becomes worse and worse. That's not the big things in life that kill us. It's the things that all people have to go through on a daily basis in life. It's getting up every damn morning and going to work. It's a bitching wife. It's a griping husband. It's screaming kids. It's burnt bacon. It's broken shoestrings. It's flat tires. All the things that everybody has to go through, and these emotions start building up. Now, after a while, the mind says, a drink would make you feel better. But remember, I put willpower in here. And willpower said, no, sir, we're not going to drink. We've quit. And that day we don't drink. The next day the emotions are still here, and they're building up a little higher and a little higher and a little higher, and it said, God, a drink would make me feel good. And the mind said, no, sir, we've quit drinking. We ain't never going to drink again. The next day, the emotions are still here, and they're building up a little higher and a little higher. And the mind begins to say, well, hell, you've been sober 90 days. You've proven you're not an alcoholic. 
one drink wouldn't hurt anybody. And the man said, no, we're not going to do that. We've quit drinking. Hell, we sworn off we'll never take another drink. The next day, the emotions are still here, and they're building up higher and higher. And the man said, by golly, anybody has been sober 92 days owes himself a drink. <laughs> and we begin to think about that great, exciting, in-control feeling that comes with one or two drinks. We begin to think about the sense of ease and comfort, as Dr. Silkworth talks about here. And as we begin to think about what alcohol is going to do for us, it begins to push out the idea of what it does to us. And we begin to forget the jailhouse. We begin to forget, we forget the last car wreck. We forget the divorce courts and the hospitalization. And the mind begins to key in on one thing and one thing only, what it's going to do for us. Then when the desire to drink comes, willpower is no longer there. Because you see, the only time willpower is there is when the mind sees something wrong with what it wants to do. And just before we drink, we don't see anything wrong with drinking. Willpower becomes non-existent. We take the drink. We trigger the allergy. We go through the well-known stages of a spree. We emerge remorseful with a firm resolution not to do this again. And we repeat that cycle over and over and over. The mind, the body, destroying the body over here. The mind over here causing us to drink more and more. And if you can't safely drink because of the body, and if you can't quit because of the mind, then you become absolutely powerless over alcohol. And that's our problem. Now, if you're going to solve a problem, you've got to be able to attack it somewhere. I can't attack it over here. Can't do nothing about that. Maybe I can attack it over here. If I could find a way to live where I could be sober and not be restless, irritable, and discontented. If I could find a way to live where I could be sober and not be filled with shame, fear, guilt, and remorse. Just maybe I could find a way to live where I could have peace of mind, serenity, and happiness. Maybe I could find a way to live where I could be sober and have that great sense of ease and comfort that come at once by taking a couple of drinks. Maybe I could find a way to live where I don't need to take a drink in order to make me feel better. And that's called recovery. As we use our program, as we go through the steps, these kind of feelings down here begin to disappear. And they begin to be replaced with peace of mind, serenity, and happiness. And under those conditions, our emotions do not build up to the level that suggests we take a drink to feel better, because we already feel better. That's what the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous do for us. Fellowship alone will not bring that about. The program will. Let's read the very next statement in the big book. He says, on the other hand, and strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems he despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol, the only effort necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules. As Charlie said, those few simple rules are the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And our book says that in the 12 and 12, if the practice as a way of life will accept, will expel the obsession to drink 
and make the person happily and usefully whole, and that is called recovery. And that's exactly what the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous is all about. That's all we've got for tonight. Thank you all for being here. We'll see you tomorrow morning. Uh, I'm going to start you off with just a little short joke, too, that I love to tell. Uh, we talked last night, we told a story about the alcoholic and the surgeon, the alcoholic's brain. This one this morning involves also not only the alcoholic, but Al-Anon and Alateen. And it seems as though the alcoholic and the Al-Anon and the Alateen had been to an AA roundup somewhere. They started back home and they decided to take a little shortcut through the countryside to see some scenery. And sure enough, they got out in the countryside and they got lost and trying to find their way out and they finally came to the farmhouse. They went up to the door of the farmhouse and knocked on the door. The farmer came to the door and they told him the problem and the farmer said, well, I can tell you how to get out of here easily. It's not that big a deal. But he said, it's getting so close to dark, <clears throat> you'll probably get lost again. He said, why don't you just spend the night here? You can get up and leave in the morning and everything will be okay. And they said, oh, fine, great. And the farmer said, we've only got one problem, though. I can only sleep two of you in the house. One of you will have to sleep down in the barn with the animals. Well, the little Alateen said, let me sleep down there. He said, I love animals and they love me and it'll be okay. So they all go to bed with the Alateen down in the barn. In about an hour, there's a knock on the door. The farmer goes to the door and the little Alateen said, man, I can't sleep down there. He says, the pigs are grunting, the cows are mooing, the horses are stomping their feet, the chickens are clucking, I just can't sleep. The alcoholic said, well, all right, son, come on in and go to bed. He said, I'll go down in the barn, I'll sleep with the animals. He said, I was raised on a farm, that won't be any problem for me. So they all go to bed with the alcoholic in the barn. Sure enough, in about an hour, knock on the door. The farmer goes to the door and there stands the alcoholic. He said, Ben, I can't sleep down there either. Said those pigs are grunting and said the cows are mooing and the horses are stomping their feet and the chickens are clucking. I just can't sleep. The Alanon said, Well, all right, come on in and go to bed. She said, I knew it would be up to me to handle the situation as it usually is. You boys stay in the house and I'll sleep in the barn. So they all go to bed with the Alanon down in the barn and sure enough there's about an hour, about an hour and there's a knock on the door. Farmer goes to the door and there stands the pigs and the cows and the chickens. <laughs> Now, don't get us wrong, we love Al-Anon. It's one of the greatest things that ever happened to AA. We both believe that. Last night, we spent quite a bit of time talking about the problem, talking about the physical allergy that ensures we can't safely drink, talking about the obsession of the mind that ensures that we can't keep from drinking, and the ultimate conclusion to that was if you can't safely drink without getting drunk, and if you can't keep from drinking, then you've become absolutely powerless over alcohol, and most certainly our lives have become unmanageable. If not at that time, then we just keep on drinking, and after a while they will be for sure. So this morning we're going to look at an example of a guy that had that problem. A good textbook never tells you anything anyhow, but what it don't back it up with more information. And we're going to look at Bill's story this morning, and Bill's story is a classic example of an alcoholic who had the allergy and who had the obsession of the mind. Now we got to remember back in the 1930s, Bill learned very early on the value 
of sharing your story with another alcoholic when you went to see Dr. Bob. And immediately Dr. Bob could see his problem also. They went to see Bill Dotson and they shared their stories with Bill Dotson. Bill Dotson could see his problem through their stories. And they learned very early on that it was necessary for one alcoholic to identify with another in order to be able to get their interest and get their attention. And when the big book was first published, they knew they wouldn't be able to sit down with the first person out here in California and share their story one-on-one. -on -one. So the big book had to be complete enough to do that. So they said, we'll put Bill's story in here at the very beginning. And another alcoholic in reading Bill's story will be able to identify with Bill. And if we can identify with Bill and see his alcoholism, see him make a recovery from that condition, we can begin to believe and we can begin to hope that we're enough like Bill Wilson that if he could recover from that condition, then just maybe we could too. Now, a lot of people have said, well, we, don't, we have trouble identifying with Bill Wilson because after all, he was a night school lawyer and we were not. After all, he was a New York City stock speculator and we were not. And a lot of the women say we can't identify with him because he's a man. And many people say, well, he was an older fellow and we couldn't identify there either. But if we look for the way Bill thinks and the way Bill acts and the way Bill drinks, if we're a real alcoholic, there's not an alcoholic in this room that can identify with Bill Wilson. So as we go through Bill's story this morning, we'll look for identification. We'll look for the progression of alcoholism. We'll look for him drinking finally for the sickest reason of all, complete oblivion. Then we'll look and see how Bill recovered from alcoholism. And if we've identified with him, then we can begin to believe that if he could do it, just maybe we could too. Identification, the beginning of belief, the beginning of hope, Joe. Yeah, I too didn't think I could identify with Bill Wilson because I'd seen pictures of him. He was an old man, I thought. Turns out he was uh, 43 years old when his book was written, so a relatively young man. But as I began to study and read Bill's story, I began to see that he was a very optimistic person, hardworking, had lots and lots of willpower. He was a self-made man, became very successful in his own right. And through Bill's story, we're going to see how he learned, uh, how he was, what he was like. They want to see how he uh, learned that he was sick, and then we're going to see how he affected a recovery. So the total story of Alcoholics Anonymous is contained in Bill Wilson's story. So let's go to page one, <clears throat> Bill's story. He said, war fever ran high in the New England town to which we knew young officers from Plattsburgh were assigned, and we were flattered when the first citizens took us to their homes. It was love, applause, and war. Moments sublime with intervals hilarious. Anybody ever had any moments sublime with intervals hilarious? <laughs> I have. Uh, I love the way Bill writes. That I was part of life at last. In the midst of excitement, I discovered liquor. I forgot the strong warnings and prejudices of my people concerning drink. In time, we sailed for over there. I was very lonely and again turned to alcohol. We landed in England. I visited Winchester Cathedral. Much moved, I wandered outside. My attention was caught by a dogger on an old tombstone. Said, here lies a Hampshire grimmeted ear who caught his death drinking cold small beer. A good soldier has never forgot whether he died by musket or by pot. Now when he said or oh, by pot, he's not referring to this wacky weed. <laughs> he's talking about a pot of beer, and that's the way they used to drink it over in England at that time. He said, ominous warning, which I failed to heed. Twenty-two in a veteran of foreign wars, I went home at last. I fancied myself a leader. 
for having not the men of my battery giving me special token of appreciation. My talent for leadership, I imagine, would one day place me in the vast and had a vast enterprise of which I would manage with the utmost assurance. He said, I took a night law course and obtained employment as an investigator for the surety company. The drive for success was on. I proved the world that I was important. I already identified with Bill Wilson. That seems to be one of the main characteristics behind every alcoholic I've ever known. That great drive for success was on. I proved to the world that I'm important also. That seems to be the driving force behind each one of us. He said, my work took me about Wall Street, and little by little I became interested in the market. Many people lost money, but some became very rich. Well, why not I? I studied economics and business as well as law. Potential alcoholic that I was, I nearly failed my law course. At one of the finals, I was too drunk to think or to write. Though my drinking was not yet continuous, it disturbed my wives. I can identify with them. <laughs> so we had a long talk when I was still her forebodings by telling her that men of genius can see their best projects when drunk. I have no trouble identifying with Bill Wilson. That the most majestic construction of the philosophic thought was so derived. Charlie said last night we make our living selling fast to talk to slow-thinking people, and Bill's trying to do some of that here, but we all know the lawyers didn't buy that. He said, by the time I'd completed the course, I knew the law was not for me. The inviting mail stream of Wall Street had me in its grip. Business and financial leaders were my heroes. Out of this alloy and rake and speculation, I commenced to forge the weapon that a one-day turned its flight like a boomerang and all but cut me to ribbons. Living modestly, my wife and I saved $1,000. It went into certain securities, then cheap and rather unpopular. I rightly imagined that they would someday have a great rise. I failed to persuade my broker friends to send me out looking over factories and managements, but my wife and I decided to go anyway. I had developed the theory that most people lost money in stocks through ignorance of markets. I discovered many more reasons later on. Now, Bill is referring to the time back in the 1920s when the stock market was on a roll, just about everybody that dealt with stocks was making money. All you had to do is buy them and hold on to them, let them go up in price, sell them, take your profits, buy some more. Everything was done on about a 10% margin. Everything was pure speculation. Bill really became one of the first investment counselors on Wall Street. He began to say, look, sooner or later this bubble is going to burst. Sooner or later we're going to have to start making our decisions based on fact rather than speculation. He went to the people who had the money, and he said, I don't have the money to do this, but if you guys would back me financially, I'll leave New York City and I'll start visiting these companies, and I'll look at the plants and I'll talk to the employees and I'll examine the books wherever I can, and I'll write up reports and send them back in here, and we'll start making our decisions whether to buy or not based on fact. And they said, nah, Bill, we don't need that kind of information. We're making about all the money we, might, we want to make anyhow. And you know how we alcoholics are. If we get a good idea, stubborn as hell, we're going to carry it out one way or the other. He said, to hell with them. I don't need them anyhow. I'll just go do this on my own. He said, we gave up our positions, and off we roared on a motorcycle. The sidecar stuff with tent blankets, a change of clothes, three huge volumes of a financial reference service. Our friends thought a lunacy commission should be appointed. <clears throat> Perhaps they were right. I had had some success in speculations. So we had a little money. But we once worked on a farm for a month to avoid drawing on our small capital. That was the last honest manual labor on my part for many a day. We covered the whole eastern United States in a year. At the end of it, my reports to Wall Street procured me a position there 
and the use of the large expense account. The exercise of an option brought in more money, leaving us with a profit of several thousand dollars for that year. <clears throat> Bill and Lois, traveling on the motorcycle, living in the tent, went up and down the eastern seaboard of the United States, and he wrote up reports on approximately 100 of the largest companies in the eastern states, sent them into New York City. The guys that had the money saw them, and they said, oh, yeah, man, this is great information. Immediately they put Bill on the payroll, gave him a large expense account. He exercised an option, made a good profit. For the first time in his life, he's got something. He came from a little town called East Dorset, Vermont. He had never had anything before in his life. Here's how he feels. For the next few years, fortune threw money and applause my way. I had arrived. <laughs> God, how many of us have done the same kind of things Bill did? My judgment and ideas were followed by many to the tune of paper millions. The great boom of the late 20s was seething and swelling. Drink was taking an important, exhilarating part in my life. There was loud talk in the jazz places uptown. Everyone spent in, th in thousands and chattered in millions. Scoffers could scoff and be damned. I made a host of fair-weather friends. And here's Bill now back in New York City on top of the heap. He's making money for himself and a lot of other people. He's drinking also, but drinking is not a problem right now. It's a very exciting thing, and Bill is really, really, really becoming a success at what he wanted to be. We also know, though, that if he's alcoholic, his drinking is going to get worse because it is a progressive thing. Let's see where he goes now from the top of the heap. You see, my drinking assumes a more serious proportion, containing all day and almost every night. The remonstrances of my friends terminated in a round, I became a lone wolf. How many of us have done the same thing, Bill? But people are going to say, Bill, you're drinking too much. Bill, you're costing us money. Bill, why don't you cut back? Bill, why don't you quit? And once again, rather than even consider that, Bill said, to hell with them. I don't need them. He begins to operate on his own now. I have no problem identifying with Bill Wilson. So there were many unhappy scenes in our sumptuous apartment. There had been no real infidelity, for Lois and my wife helped at times by extreme drunkenness kept me out of those straits. Now, I've always believed about everything Bill wrote, but I'm not sure about that. <laughs> you see, we have a book in AA called As Bill Sees It, and now and on they have a book called As Lois Remembers. <laughs> a whole lot different. <laughs> You're not exactly the same either. Let's go over to page four, first paragraph. Here's old Bill. He's making lots of money. He's doing well. He's got lots of willpower, lots of hope for the future, hardworking, optimistic, a self-made man. On page four, it said, abruptly, in October 1929, hell broke loose on the New York Stock Exchange. After one of those days of inferno, I wobbled from a hotel bar to a brokerage office. It was eight o'clock, five hours after the market had closed. The ticker still clattered. I was staring at an inch of tape which bore the inscription XYZ32. It had been 52 that morning. He said, I was finished, and so were many friends. The papers reported men jumping to the death from towers of high finance. He said, that disgusted me. I would not jump. I went back to the bar. <laughs> Bill had a solution for that, didn't he? My friends had dropped several million since 10 o'clock, well, so what? Tomorrow was another day, and I, as I drank that old fierce determination to win, came back. How many of us have done the same thing? You could come out of the jailhouse, the divorce court, the hospital, or wherever, low, sad, depressed, stop off in the bar, have a couple of drinks, and if the alcohol courses through our veins, we say, we'll show them. By God, they're not going to treat us that way. And we're off and we're running again, that old fierce determination to be somebody to show them. Next morning, I telephoned a friend in Montreal. 
He had plenty of money left and thought, I'd better go to Canada. You know, Bill was a drunk. He wasn't stupid. He knew where the money was, so he went to Canada. By the following spring, we were living in our custom style. I felt like Napoleon returning from Elba, no Santa Helena for me. The drinking caught up with me again. My generous friend had to let me go, and this time we stayed broke. Now we see our drinking progressing to the point where we can no longer even hold a job. We went to live with my wife's parents. I found a job and lost it as a result of a brawl with a taxi driver. Mercifully, no one could guess that I was to have no real employment for five years or hardly draw a sober breath. My wife began to work at a department store, coming home exhausted to find me drunk. I became an unwelcome hanger-on at brokerage places, people at where he used to be the fair-haired boy, where he used to make lots of money for lots of people. He goes in there now, and they're saying, Bill, we'd rather you didn't come in here today. You're about half drunk, and you don't look good, and you're smelling bad. You're embarrassing in front of our customers. Please move right on down the street. Certainly, certainly, we can see the progression of alcoholism. We've gone from excitement to now then we've gone to the point where it controls us completely. No longer hold a job. Nobody wants us around anymore. It starts to get worse. Liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. Now we're drinking for an entirely different reason. We're drinking now because we absolutely have to drink in order to live. No fun left anymore. No excitement. Drinking in order to be able to live. Bathtub, chin, two balls a day, and often three got to be routine. Sometimes a small deal would net a few hundred dollars, and I would pay my bills at the bars and delicatessens. Now, this went on endlessly, and I began to wake it very early in the morning, shaking violently. A tumbler full of gin followed by a half dozen bottles of beer would be required if I were to eat any breakfast. Nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation, and there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. Remember last night, Dr. Silkworth said we really could not differentiate the truth from the false. To us, what we're doing is normal. We see Bill's life going to hell in a handbasket already. Bill can't see that. He thinks he can still control the situation. Let's see where he goes on control. Things are real bad in Bill's life, but it says gradually things got worse. The house was taken over by the mortgage holder, my mother-in-law died, and my wife and father-in-law became ill. He said, then I got a promising business opportunity. Stocks were at a low point in 1932, and I somehow formed a group to buy. I was to share generously in the profits. Then I went on a prodigious bender, and that chance vanished. This is a story within itself. The people who had the money knew how good Bill was at putting these deals together. And they came to Bill, and they said, Bill, we've got a proposition for you. We've got an opportunity to not only make money for us, but to make money for you. And if you can stay sober, we'd like for you to handle this thing. And Bill said, don't you worry about that drinking. He said, I'm through with that drinking. You'll not have to worry about that. And he worked for a matter of months putting this deal together. And a few days before it was to be successfully completed, one night, they're all sitting around in the hotel room talking about this. Somebody passes around a bottle of Applejack. This was back during the days of Prohibition. It came to Bill, and he said, No, thank you, I'm not drinking anymore. After a while, it came back to him, and the guy next to him said, Bill, you don't understand what this is. He said, This is the finest Applejack in the world. It is called Jersey Lightning. You better have a drink. And Bill's mind said, hmm, I've never tasted any Jersey Lightning. <laughs> no more thought than that. He reached out, grabbed the bottle, took a drink, triggered the allergy, couldn't sober up, blew the whole deal. Now, the importance in it lies within the next statement. He said, I woke up. This had to be stopped. I, I saw that I could not take as much as one drink. I was through forever. 
Before then, I'd written lots of sweet promises, but my wife happily observed that this time I meant business, and so I did. For the first time, Bill could differentiate the truth from the false. For the first time, he could truly see what alcohol was doing to him, and he did this like all the rest of us. He trotted out his willpower, and he said, Sick em, Will. We're through with that drinking. We'll never drink again as long as we live. You know, they tell us, try to tell us we are weak-willed people. Don't you believe that? We are strong-willed people. Weak-willed people do not become alcoholic. Third time they vomit, they quit drinking. <laughs> alcoholic knows there's got to be some way to drink without puking. We damn near kill ourselves, you know. We got lots of willpower. See, but Bill doesn't know what we learned last night. Anytime there's a battle going on between the willpower and the obsession of the mind, the obsession of the mind is stronger than willpower, and it'll always win. That's how strong it is. Let's see what happened to him on willpower. He said, shortly afterward, I came home drunk. There had been no fight. Where had been my high resolve? I simply didn't know. It hadn't even come to mind. Someone had pushed a drink my way, and I'd taken it. He said, was I crazy? See, if his willpower is not working, then he begins to question his sanity. Am I just crazy? Is that it? He said, I began to wonder for such an appalling lack of perspective seemed near being just that. Now, renewing my resolve, I tried again. Some time passed and confidence began to be replaced by cocksuredness. He said, I could laugh at the gin mills. Now I had what it takes. One day I walked into a cafe to telephone. In no time I was beating on the bar asking myself how it happened. And as the whiskey rose to my head, I told myself I would manage better next time. But I might as well get good and drunk then. And I did. Anybody in here identify with Bill Wilson? Huh? He said, the remorse and the horror and hopeless of the next morning are unforgettable. Can you guys hear him from the back? Can you hear back there okay? Yeah. Okay. I, my voice is a little low here this morning. Okay, where am I? All right. Laughlin, <laughs> <laughs> Nevada. I got, a one, yeah. I, I got a wonderful memory. It's just short. <laughs> To the remorse and horror and hopeless of the next morning are unforgettable. The courage to do battle was not there. My brain raced uncontrollably. There, there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. I hardly dared cross the street lest I collapse and be run down by an early morning truck. For it was scarcely daylight. An all-night place supplied me with a dozen glasses of ale. My rotting nerves were stilled at last. A morning paper told me the market had gone to hell again, but so had I. The market would recover, but I wouldn't. That was a hard thought. Should I kill myself? No, not now. Then a mental fog settled down. Jen would fix that, so two bottles in the oblivion. See, Bill questioned his, he used his willpower, and that didn't work. He began to question his sanity, and that didn't work. And then he began to contemplate suicide. And then he was drinking for the sickest effect of all, total oblivion. And that's where we find Bill at this time. He said, the mind and body are a marvelous mechanism, for mine endured this agony two more years. Sometimes I stole from my wife's friend purse when the morning terror and madness were on me. Again, I, I swayed dizzily before an open window or the medicine cabinet where there was poison, cursing myself for a weakling. There were flights from city to country and back as I, and my wife and I saw it escape. Then came the night when the physical and mental torture was so hellish, I feared I'd burst through my window, sash and all. Sometime I, somehow I managed to drag my mattress to the lower floor lest I suddenly leap. A doctor came with heavy, heavy sedative. Next day found me drinking both gin and sedative. This combination soon landed me on the rocks. People feared for my sanity, and well, so did I. I could eat little or nothing when drinking, and I was 40 pounds underweight. So now we find Bill drinking for oblivion, not eating very often. I can identify with Bill. He's dying of malnutrition. 
and I'd wish I couldn't identify with Bill because when I was drinking those last years of my drinking, occasionally I'd eat a bologna sandwich because I knew you're supposed to eat something rather than just drink. And that's what Bill was doing at this time, dying of malnutrition. My brother-in-law is a physician, and through his kindness and that of my mother, I was placed in a nationally known hospital for the mental and physical rehabilitation of alcoholics. This is the town's hospital in New York City, and this is the summer of 1933. Under the so-called belladonna treatment, my brain cleared. Belladonna was a drug that they used to fool the body into thinking it had alcohol in it. It was used for withdrawal purposes. It's what they use Valium for today. Hydrotherapy and mild exercise helped much. Hydrotherapy is a water treatment. We saw some of that in the treatment center in Australia back in the 1980s. They would put the alcoholic on a gurney, roll him into the shower room, and they had shower heads all the way around the shower room alternating hot and cold water. Be in there for about 30 minutes. Doesn't cure alcoholism, but it makes a clean drunk out of you. I'll guarantee you that. <clears throat> Those guys had come out of there and their skin all wrinkled up and shriveled up. He said, best of all, I met a kind doctor. Now, this is Dr. Silkworth. To explain that though certainly selfish and foolish, I'd been seriously ill bodily and mentally. Silky sat down with him and explained his ideas about the physical allergy and the obsession of the mind. And here's the effect it had on Bill. He said, it relieved me somewhat to learn that in alcoholics the will is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor, though it often remains strong in other respects. My incredible behavior in the face of a desperate desire to stop was explained. Understanding myself now, I fared forth in high hope. For three or four months, the goose hung high. I went to town regularly and even made a little money. Surely this was the answer, self-knowledge. For the first time, Bill understood his problem. He knew it was not willpower. He knew it wasn't moral character and sin. He knew it was a physical allergy coupled with an obsession of the mind, and that's what made him absolutely powerless. And he said, now that I know what's wrong with me, I'll not have to drink any longer. Let's see where he goes from here. The information we learned last night about the doctor's opinion and the illness of alcoholism is very, very important information. But, you know, it's just information that will not solve alcoholism just because we know what the problem is, as Bill found out. But it was not, for the frightful day came when I drank once more. The curve of my declining moral and bodily health fell off like a ski jump. And after a time, I returned to the hospital. Now, this is the summer of 1934. A year later, we go back into the towns for the second time. He said, this was a finish, the curtain, it seemed to me. My weary and despairing wife was informed that it would all end with heart failure during delirium tremens, or I would develop a wet brain perhaps within a year. She would soon have to give me over to the undertaker or the asylum. Bill was laying in the hospital room there all sick. He overheard Lois and Dr. Silkworth talking. She said, Dr. Silkworth, is there any hope for him? And he said, no, I don't believe so, Lois. We'll have to give him over to the undertaker of the asylum because there's no solution for Bill. And he said, they did, they did not need to tell me. He said, I knew and I almost welcomed the idea. It was a devastating blow to my pride. I, who had thought so well of myself and my abilities and my capacity to mount obstacles with corners at last, now I was to, to plunge into the dark, joining that endless possession of thoughts who'd gone on before. I thought of my poor wife. There had been much happiness after all. What would I not give to make amends? But that was over now. Bill was a very hardworking, op optimistic individual, and now we see Bill, he is hopeless. He is without hope. And we all know you can't live long without hope. 
You've got to have hope. But Bill is hopeless at the moment. Now let's look at this next statement very carefully. He said, No words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. I've never seen a better description of step one. No step one written in those days, but surely this is where Bill took it. He admitted complete defeat. Alcohol had whipped him in a fair fight. He was completely powerless over alcohol. Now, if that should happen to you and I today, chances are we would say, well, that being the case, I guess I better go to AA. But Bill didn't have any AA to go to. He's in the best facility he knows of. So even though he's admitted his powerlessness, even though he's taken what we know as step one, the only thing he can do is leave that hospital, try to stay sober on his own. Trembling, I stepped from the hospital a broken man. Fear sobered me for a bit. Then came the insidious insanity of that first drink. And in our Mr. Stay 1934, I was off again. Everyone became resigned to the certainty that I would have to be shut up somewhere or would stumble along to a miserable end. How dark it is before the dawn. In reality, that was the beginning of my last debauch. I was soon to be catapulted in what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness of the way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. Near the end of that bleak November, I sat drinking in my kitchen, and I imagine it was a pretty bleak November. He started drinking on November the 11th, triggered the allergy, couldn't stop, been drunk now for about three weeks. With a certain satisfaction, I reflected there was enough gin concealed about the house to carry me through that night to the next day. My wife was at work. I wondered whether I dared hide a little bottle of gin near the head of her bed. I would need it before daylight. My musing was interrupted by the telephone. The cheery voice of an old school friend asked if he might come over. Now, this was Abby Thatcher. And Bill and Abby had gone to school together when they were younger, did lots of drinking together. And Bill knew about Abby, and he knew how Abby drank. And he said he was sober. And if you'll notice, that's in Squiggly Writing. <laughs> Squiggly Writing in the big book is very important. This really amazed Bill. Abby's sober. He said, well, it was years since I remember coming to New York in that condition. I was amazed. Rumor had it that he hadn't been committed for alcoholic insanity. The last Bill had heard about Abby is Abby was going to be committed to the state insane asylum in the state of Vermont for alcoholic insanity. That's what they used to do with people like us before we had the treatment centers. They'd haul us in front of a judge. The judge would commit us to the state insane asylum for alcoholic insanity for an undetermined period of time. Till you got well. You would stay there until you got well. And that's the last he had heard about Abby. He said, I wonder how, how he'd escaped. He was amazed that Abby was out of the treatment center, or uh, insane asylum, excuse me. The same thing. Same thing. Yeah. <laughs> They've renamed everything, you know, yeah. these days. They talk about dis dysfunctional families today. Well, mine was just crazy as hell. I don't know. <laughs> but Abby, Abby come from a, a very prominent family in Albany, New York. In fact, his father was the mayor of Albany. Very prominent family, and Abby's drinking was embarrassing the family. So they called Abby in one day. Said Abby, said you're embarrassing the family with your drinking. We would like for you to just basically get out of town and going over there to Vermont and stay at the old summer place, and we'll be over there this summer. And while you're there, you might as well sober up. 
And if you get sober, you might as well make yourself useful and paint up and fix up the old summer place because we'll be using it. So Abby went out, got out of town and went over to Vermont. He began to fix up the old summer place, painting and fixing up. And one day he finished painting this wall, and he looked at it, and he was admiring that. And he noticed that some pigeons were doing some things on the side of his wall that he didn't like. So he went in the house and got his shotgun out and began to shoot at the pigeons, blowing holes in the side of the wall. Well, the neighbors, they don't like that at all. So they called the police and they had him arrested, and they took him before the judge, and they were going to commit him for alcoholic insanity. But Abby got real lucky. Two fellows interceded on his behalf. One guy's name was Roland Hazard. The other one was Cedra Graves. And they asked the judge if they might release Abby to their care because they were going to the Oxford group, and they felt if they took Abby to the Oxford group meetings and if he would apply the tenets of the Oxford group to his life, maybe he too could stay sober as they had. Well, Abby began to go to the Oxford group meetings, and he began to stay sober. And a couple of months later, he goes to New York to the Calvary Mission, was the headquarters of the Oxford Group at that time. And he began to stay there in that mission. And after a while, he decided that he remembered his friend Bill. He said, I think I'll go over and talk to Bill. Maybe I can help Bill stay sober, as these two fellows had helped me. Now, Bill didn't know any of this, so he said, I wondered how he'd escape. Of course, he would have dinner, and I could drink opity with him. Unmindful of his welfare, I thought only of recapturing the spirit of other days. There was a time we'd chartered an airplane to complete a jag. His coming was an oasis in this dreary desert of futility. The very thing an oasis, drinkers are like that. The door opened and he stood there fresh-skinned and glowing. There was something about his eyes. He was inexplicably different. What had happened? I pushed a drink across the table and he refused it. Disappointed but curious, I wondered what got into the fellow. He wasn't himself. Come, what's all this about, I queried. And he looked straight at me simply but smilingly. He said, I've got religion. Now, I'm damn glad that didn't happen in my kitchen. <laughs> I have no idea what I would have done. But here's what Bill did. He said I was aghast. So that was it. Last summer, an alcoholic crackpot, now I suspected a little crack about religion. He had that starry-eyed look. Yeah, the old boy was on fire, all right. But bless his heart, let him rant. Besides, my gin would last longer than his preaching. But he didn't move any. In a matter-of-fact way, he told how two men had appeared in court persuading the judge to suspend his commitment. They had told of a simple religious idea, which is step two, and a practical program of action, step three through twelve. That was two months ago, and the result was self-evident. It worked. So now then, Bill knows all three things. He got the problem from Dr. Silkworth. He got the solution here referred to as a simple religious idea from Eddie. He got the practical program of action from Eddie. So now he knows all three things. But Bill is also just like so many of us. He did not like this simple religious idea. You know, Bill's thoughts and his ideas about God and about religion and etc. were enough that made him resent what Eddie had brought to him. He said he'd come to pass his experience along to me if I cared to have it. I was shocked but interested. Certainly I was interested. I had to be for I was hopeless. He talked for hours. Childhood memories rose before me. I could almost hear the sound of the preacher's voice as I sat on still Sundays way over there on the hillside. There was that proffered temperance pledge I never signed. My grandfather's good-natured contempt of some church folk and their doings. His insistence that the spheres really had their music 
but his denial of the preacher's right to tell him how he must listen. You know, Bill's grandfather, Grandpa Griffith, raised him from 12 years on. And Grandpa Griffith believed in some power greater than human power, but he wouldn't let anybody tell him how he had to, to believe in it. He had a, his grandpa had a great problem with the world's religions. He'd passed that along to Bill. His fearlessness, he spoke of these things just before he died. These recollections welled up from the past and they made me swallow hard. That wartime day in old Winchester Cathedral came back again. And we're Bill's having a problem now with this religious idea that Eddie's talking about. We've seen him take step one. In the next couple of pages, we're going to see him take step two. Let's see how he came to be able to accept this religious idea. Yeah, Bill has already took step one, so now he's between steps one and two. He hasn't took step two yet. He began to ponder these things. He said, I always believed in the power greater than myself. I'd often pondered these things. I was not an atheist. Few people really are, for that means blind faith in the strange proposition that says universe originated in a cipher and aimlessly rushes nowhere. My intellectual heroes, the chemists, the astronomers, even the evolutionists suggest vast laws and forces at work. But despite contrary indications, I had little doubt that a mighty purpose and rhythm underlay all. How could there be so much precise and immutable law and no intelligence? He asked I simply had to believe in the spirit of the universe who knew neither time nor limitation. But that was as far as I had gone. Now here's where I really began to identify with Bill Wilson. With many from the world's religions, I parted right there. When they talked of a God personal to me, who was love, superhuman strength, and direction, he said, I became irritated, and my mind snapped shut against such theories. To Christ I could see the certainty of a great man, not too closely followed by those who claimed him. His moral teachings, most excellent. For myself, I had adopted those parts which seemed convenient and not too difficult. <laughs> the rest I disregarded. Anybody in here identify with Bill Wilson? Huh? You betcha. We can see that Bill's having a terrible time with this religious idea. Now let's go down to the middle paragraph. But my friend sat before me, and he made the point declaration that God had done for him what he could not do for himself. His human will had failed. Doctors had pronounced him incurable. Society was about to lock him up. Like myself, he'd admitted complete defeat. Then he had, in effect, been raised from the dead, suddenly taken from the scrap heap to a level of life better than the best he'd ever known. Had this power originated in him? Obviously it had not. There'd been no more power in him than there was in me at that minute, and this was none at all. This is where the identification process is so important. Bill knew about Eddie. He knew how Eddie drank. And he knew that if Eddie had been sober two months, some power greater than Eddie had to be working in Eddie's life. Whether Bill likes it or not is absolutely beside the point. Eddie's living proof of it. That's what you and I offer to the newcomer. You know, when we sit there talking to a newcomer, we're living proof that some power greater than human power is working in our lives also. Whether the newcomer likes it or not is beside the point. We are the proof of it. Eddie was the proof for Bill. Now, I'd like to have been there that day sitting in a corner watching them. Bill's about two-thirds drunk. Eddie has come out of the Oxford groups, and they were a group of people practicing first-century Christianity to the best of their ability. The terms they used were highly religious in nature. Eddie is on fire, and he's talking about God. And Bill don't like it at all. And they're sitting there arguing with each other about who God is and what He is, and Bill said, don't give me that religious crap. 
Oh, yeah, I believe in the great mind, the spirit of nature, but don't give me that other kind of stuff. And Ebby's trying to put it on old Bill, and they're arguing back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Let's go over to page 12, first paragraph. He said, despite the living example of my friend, there remained in me the vestiges of my old prejudice. Bill still doesn't like this idea. The word God still aroused a certain antipathy. When the thought was expressed that there might be a God personal to me, this feeling was intensified. He said, I didn't like the idea. I could go for such conception of creative intelligence, universal mind, or spirit of nature, but I resisted the thought of the of the heavens, however loving his way might be. I have since talked with scores of men who felt the same way. In other, in other words, Bill was saying there's got to be a harder way to do this. <laughs> what you're saying is too simple. I guess said he finally, finally got tired of this deal. Let's look at the next statement very carefully. If you'll notice, it's in squiggly writing. My friend suggested what then seemed a novel idea. He said, well, why don't you choose your own conception of God? In other words, he said, Bill, what are we arguing about? What difference does it make what we call it? Why don't you choose your own conception of God? And we're no longer dealing with religion now. We're dealing with spirituality. You see, religion says this is the way you have to believe. Spirituality says it really doesn't make any difference how you believe. The only question is, are you willing to believe? So we're, we're through with religion. Now we're talking about spirituality. And here's the effect that it had on Bill. That statement hit me hard. It melted the icy intellectual mountain whose shadow I'd lived and shivered many years. I stood in the sunlight at last. It took all arguments away from him. He couldn't argue with that statement. He said it was only a matter of being willing to believe in a power greater than myself. Nothing more was required of me to make my beginning. I saw that growth could start from that point. Upon a foundation of complete willingness, I might build what I saw in my friend. Would I have it? Of course I would. Surely this is when Bill took step two. No step two written in those days. But here's where he came to believe in a power greater than himself based on Eddie's simple little statement, why don't you choose your own conception of God? And that statement has opened the door for countless millions of we alcoholics who were having trouble with religion. And I think the reason it really works is we're allowed here to have our own conception of God. And you know, as I look back at my lifetime, I realize I've never had any problem with my own conception of anything. <laughs> you betcha. Let me believe the way I want to, and I'm ready to go now. Bill is now taking a step two. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? When he made the statement, I saw that growth could start from that point. Upon the foundation of complete willingness, I might build what I saw in my friend. Would I have it? Of course I would. This is Bill's first reference to a wonderfully effective spiritual structure. And he's going to start painting a picture in our mind using words. Eventually he'll tell us what the structure is and show us where we'll pass through it to freedom. Now his first reference to it is, upon a foundation of complete willingness, I might build what I saw in my, fr in my friend. The foundation of this structure is willingness. That came from step one when we could see that what we were doing would no longer work, period, we became willing to change. Later on, we're going to see where believing, step two is the cornerstone of that structure. And eventually, he'll tell us exactly what it is, a beautiful way to teach, painting pictures in our mind using words. If we are willing, and if we believe, then we've already started the road to recovery. Bill has now taken steps one and two. Immediately, Abby starts taking him to Oxford group meetings. 
But remember, Bill's still drinking. Triggered the allergy on November the 11th, he can't stop. On about December the 10th, probably, 1934, Bill was put back in the hospital for the third time for withdrawal from alcohol by Dr. Silkworth. Abby comes to visit with him. They begin to apply the little Oxford group program of action, and Bill had his spiritual experience. Let's look on page 13. Let's see if we can't see the last ten steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. He's taken one and two. Let's see if we can't see the last ten. He said, at the hospital I was separated from alcohol for the last time. Treatment seemed wise, so I showed signs of delirium tremens. There I humbly offered myself to God as I then understood him, to do with me as he would. I placed myself unreservedly under his care and direction. I admitted for the first time that of myself I was nothing, that without him I was lost. The first tenet that the Oxford group had was surrender. Now Bill later on when he wrote the steps, he realized that no alcoholic would like the word surrender. So he changed their first step into our third step where we made a decision to turn our will and life over to the care of God as we understand it. We see him there taking the first Oxford group tenant, which turned out to be our step three. He's now taken one, two, and three. He said, I ruthlessly faced my sins. I ruthlessly faced my sins. Their second tenant was examine your sins. And Bill knew that no good alcoholic's going to do that. So he changed that into made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. He's taking step four there. And became willing to have my newfound friend take them away root and branch. I've not had a drink since. Became willing to have my newfound friend take them away root and branch. You'll notice friend is capitalized. This is one of the words that Bill uses for God. And that little statement, became willing to have my newfound friend take them away root and branch, later became step six and seven. We became willing to have God remove these things and humbly ask him to do so. There we're dealing with six and seven. My schoolmate visited me and I fully acquainted him with my problems and deficiencies. He's taking what we know today as step five there in the town's hospital with Abby. We made a list of people I'd heard toward whom I felt resentment. I expressed my entire willingness to approach these individuals, admitting my wrong. Never was I to be critical of them. I was to write all such matters to the utmost of my ability. They had an Oxford group tenant called Restitution. And Bill knew no self-respecting alcoholic is on a new restitution. So he took that and made two steps out of it, step eight and nine, where we made the list and became willing and then made amends. There he's dealing with eight and nine. He says, I was test my thinking by the new God conscious within. Common sense would thus become uncommon sense. That statement later became step ten, where we continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly explained it. I mean, admitted it. <laughs> That's the new step 10. <laughs> I would sit quietly when in doubt, asking only for direction and strength to meet my problems as he would have me. Never was I to pray for myself except as my request bore on my youthness to others. Then only might I expect to receive, but that would be in great measure. And there we see all the elements of step 12, where we start through prayer and medica med meditation <laughs> step 11. to improve our conscious contact with God, so on and so forth. There he's dealing with step 11. I'm sorry, step 11. My friend promised when these things were done, I would enter upon a new relationship with my Creator, that I would have the elements of a way of living which answered all my problems. It's got to be the first part of step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. So we see Bill in the town's hospital applying the Oxford group tenets, which later he made into the last ten steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
This is why he was able to say and how it works, these are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. Bill took them in the town hospital with the help of Eddie. Now let's see what happened to him. Belief in the power of God plus enough willingness, honesty, and humility to establish and maintain the new order of things were the essential requirements. Simple, but not easy. A price had to be paid. It meant the destruction of self-centeredness. And I must turn in all things to the Father of the Light who presides over us all. Poor old alcoholics got to give up the two most important things in our lives. And the first thing is our alcohol, and the second thing is our self-centeredness. The two very things Very difficult to do. Very difficult, but very simple. Yeah. He said, these were revolutionary and drastic proposals. But the moment I accepted them, the effect was electric. There was a sense of victory followed by such a peace and serenity as I've ever known. There was utter confidence. I felt lifted up as though the great clean wind of a mountaintop blew through and through. God comes to most men gradually, but his impact on me was sudden and profound. And for a moment I was alarmed and called my friend the doctor and asked if I was still sane. He listened in wonder as I talked. You know, Bill overheard Lois and, and Dr. Silkworth talking, so he thought he'd gone crazy. He thought he'd check out with Dr. Silkworth to see if he had gone crazy. Finally, after he told me his experience, finally he shook his head saying, well, something's happened to you I don't understand but you better hang on to it. Anything is better than the way that you were. The good doctor now sees many men who had such experiences. He knows that they are real. Now, we don't know what happened to Bill that day. We were not there to see that. But we know this was probably about December the 14th of 1934. We do know that Bill didn't die until January of 1971. We do know that it was never necessary for him to take another drink from this day until the day that he died. Something profound took place in his life that day. Bill always said, I had a vital spiritual experience as the result of these steps during which old ideas were cast aside and replaced with a new set of ideas, and I was able to live the rest of my life without drinking. Now, here's a guy that went in the hospital, selfish and self-centered to the extreme, always doing what he wanted to do whenever he wanted to do it. That was his attitude when he went in there. Let's look at his attitude now that he's had the spiritual experience. He said, while I lay in the hospital, the thought came that there were thousands of hopeless alcoholics who might be glad to have what had been so freely given me. Perhaps I could help some of them. They, in turn, might work with others. Bill had that gigantic spiritual experience, and then he immediately begins to think how he can give it to other people. Something profound happened with Bill. He said, my friend, and this time you'll notice it's a small f, he's referring to Eddie now. My friend had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs. Particularly was it imperative to work with others as he had worked with me. Faith without works was dead, he said, and how appallingly true for the alcoholic. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life, through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. If he did not work, he would surely drink again, and if he drank, he would surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed, and with us it's just like that. Thank God Bill knew that and accepted that fact. Because when he was in about to get drunk, he remembered how back in New York City, even though he'd never helped anybody else, that he himself had felt better. That's why he got hold of Dr. Bob, to try to help Dr. Bob, not necessarily to sober up Bob, but to keep Bill from getting drunk. And thank God it kept him from getting drunk, and Bob sobered up. And from there we had the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Faith without works is dead. And you notice about anybody I see drink today. 
that's been in AA for any period of time, usually they have quit working with other people. And when they quit working with other people, they start thinking about self only. And after a while, all the old problems come back, and we end up getting drunk all over again. Always working with others will help us when nothing else will. He said, my wife might abandon themselves with enthusiasm the idea of helping other alcoholics to a solution to their problems. It was fortunate for my old business associates remained skeptical for a year and a half, during which I found little work. I was not too well at the time, and I was plagued by waves of self-pity and resentment. This sometimes nearly drove me back to drink. But I soon found when all other measures failed, work with another alcoholic would save the day. Many times I've gone to my old hospital in despair. On talking to a man there, I'd be amazingly lifted up and set on my feet. It's a design for living that works in rough going. We took a design for living that works in rough going and turned it into a non-drinking society, I'm afraid. This is designed for living. And the work is really, really hard, but the pay is really, really good, too. We managed to stay sober, isn't that something? Now, if we're a brand new alcoholic out here in California, no fellowship around us. First contact we've ever had is this book called Alcoholics Anonymous. We've read the doctor's opinion. We've been able to see what our problem is. We've read Bill's story. We've been able to identify with another alcoholic. We've seen him go from fun drinking to drinking because of absolute necessity, going finally to the sickest of all, complete oblivion. Then we've seen him recover from that condition. Now surely, surely, we could say to ourselves, we're enough like this guy, that if he can recover, just maybe we could too. The beginning of belief, the beginning of hope. By now we could probably hardly wait to see what really did take place in Bill's life.